We're going to start, Lord willing, next Wednesday, the Doctrine of Hell. I think you're going to find that a very sober, serious, important doctrine that is neglected. We're going to work our way through that starting, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. We are on page 89 tonight to the end, so I hope you have those pages because we're going to work our way through them. We're going to start with a verb quiz that we gave you. Did you do it? Did you bring it? Okay, well done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this group that's out tonight. We pray you would bless our time together, Lord. I pray we would always be serious-minded people in the way we approach the precious Word of God. You've inspired it in written form. What a privilege it is to have it. I pray we'd be able to always grasp it, Lord, in a way that's rightly divided. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, take your verb quiz and we'll work our way through it. Question number one, a verb that takes an object is a transitive verb, letter V. Question number two, a verb that does not take an object is an intransitive verb, letter I. A verb is A, action. A verb that does not have action within itself is J, linking verb. Number five, the subject performs the action, it's active, B. Number six, the subject receives the action, it is passive, M. Number seven, the subject performs and receives the action, it's middle, K. The I, we viewpoint of a verb is first person, D. The you viewpoint of a verb is second person, R. The he, she viewpoint of the verb is third person, W. One person or subject performs the action, that is S, singular. More than one person or subject performs the action, it is P, plural. Mood of factual reality is F, indicative. Mood of probability is T, subjunctive. Mood of possibility is L, optative. Mood of command is G, imperative. Time of action and kind of action, U, tense. Continual action in present time is Q, present. Continual action in past time is H, imperfect. Point or moment of action in past time is C, aorist. Point of past action with continual results is N, perfect. Action of the future is E, future. And past moment of time with past results is O, pluperfect. How'd you do? Got them all? Good. Good. All right, I want to just talk about a couple of grammatical issues. I think we've laid a pretty good foundation, and the number of studies we've had would have taken you to about a two-hour course. If you were studying this thing in a theological institution, there would have been probably more interaction and things, but we've taken you through about two hours in an actual formal course setting. I want to talk about a participle and an infinitive, and then we're going to wrap this up tonight. A participle is an action word. It's part of the verb family, but it describes things, so it's called a verbal adjective. That's what a participle is. I'll give you some examples in a minute, but because it's in the verb family, it'll have a tense and a voice, and because it's in the adjective family, it will have gender, number, and case that we've talked about. And because it functions as an adjective, it's always going to modify something. It's always going to be dependent on something. And participles are often formed by adding the letters ing to a word. For example, she was a working person. 
He was a working person. You add the I-N-G to work, it's an adjective that makes it a participle. It was a refreshing drink. It was a refreshing drink. Or that was a crying baby. So often a participle is formed by adding I-N-G to a word. Oftentimes also by adding E-D to a verb, it is a wrecked car. A wrecked car, which would also make it a participle. So that's how you make participles. And some examples of participles in the Bible, Matthew 2, 7, the exact time the star appeared, appeared as a participle. Luke 1, 45, blessed is he who believed, believed as a participle. You're adding the ED to that. John 4, 11, where then, that's the Samaritan woman, do you get that living water? Not just water, where do you get the living water? So you can see that the word is functioning as an adjective modifying water, but it has an ing to it, which makes it a participle. John 4.25, he was called Christ. So it's not just Christ, but called Christ. So that modifies Christ. And then Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living, piercing as far as division. That's what a participle is. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing on that other than to expose you to the information, and you can go from there from the foundation we've laid. Now that brings us to the other kind of odd structure, which is called an infinitive. You'll run across this a lot in the Bible. An infinitive is an action word that's part of the verb family. It's called a verbal noun is what it is. It's a word that functions as a noun. We'll give you some illustrations of it in a minute. And because it's in the verb family, it's going to have tense and voice. And because it's in the noun family, it will have a case. So you can always expect to find that. Infinitives are usually formed by adding two to the word. And some ways an infinity may be used in Matthew 2.2, we've come to worship him. So to worship him is an infinitive. In Luke 10.19, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. To tread is an infinitive. You're putting two to the word. In Romans 1.10, I may succeed to come to you. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. I may succeed to come to you. Pray for me. Then in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, some noun ways that an infinitive may be used is, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So those are two little groupings of words that are in the Bible. We've taken you through nouns, adjectives, adverbs, articles, participles, infinitives, and that's laying a foundation for you. You can take it from here and do what you want. Now to wrap this up, I want to talk about for a few minutes the matter of Bible translation because there are people out there that are just crazy and they don't know what they're doing with this and so I want to just address this for a few moments tonight. We talk about Bible translation and the kind of things that scribes would tend to when they're copying manuscripts, they would have little glitches at times and Mr. Kelly covers that in Bibliology. I can't encourage you enough to be in that doctrine class. When they finish up eschatology, that's probably where he's going to go, isn't it? Bibliology. You'll want to get in on that. I mean, he covers a lot of the important data that pertains to the Word of God, and he'll get into eventually the kind of manuscript mistakes, as we could call it, or glitches that are made in the Scriptures. So that's important. But in a translation of the Bible, what you have 
And we've been talking a lot about analyzing the scriptures and the original languages. So in a Bible translation, what you have is you have a translation that's given from an original language, which is Greek or Hebrew when it comes to the Bible, into the English language, which is our language. That's what a translation is. You look at the Greek or the Hebrew and you translate it into English so we can read it in the English language. Now, we have to use words that English speakers and hearers could understand to do that. Otherwise, it makes no sense. I mean, you have to look at a word in one language and say, okay, what's the best way we can translate this into another language? For example, if I say to you, adadrosen, ho, Jesus, that doesn't mean a thing to you. So we translate that into English, Jesus wept. Now that means something to you. If we say in just Greek, pantote, kairate, it means zero to you if you don't know Greek. So we translate that into rejoice always. So I want you to understand what translation is. We take one language, we translate it into another language. Now we have available today an abundance of Greek manuscripts and the latest calculation that we have here, Tim, you can add to those notes because it's gone up a little since I talked to you last about this. A biblical manuscript can be defined this way. It's a handwritten copy of a portion of a biblical text. That's what a biblical manuscript is. Somebody took a biblical text and they hand copied it. That's called a manuscript. Now, the type of manuscripts that God has preserved for us to translate into English are basically four. We have what's called papyri manuscripts. That name is due to the material on which the words were written. There are in existence 128 papyri manuscripts written on papyrus reed. It came from the Nile River area, and it was a dried material that came from a reed, a papyrus reed, and then they use that to write on, and we have 128 papyra manuscripts in existence today. There are what's called majuscule or unseal manuscripts. That refers to the fact that the text is written in all capital letters, and we have 322 unseal manuscripts in existence. And then you have what's called minuscule manuscripts. That name is due to the fact that it's written in small letters cursive style. There are 2,926 minuscule manuscripts in existence. And then we have what's called lectionary manuscripts. Now, the name is due to the fact that the manuscripts are various portions that were assigned for reading. Lectionaries are more in book form and not a complete continuous text. And we have 2,462 lectionary manuscripts in existence. So, the total number of manuscripts that we actually have to work from today to get the New Testament into English is we're working with 5,838 manuscripts. You have 5,838 Greek manuscripts of biblical text. You have 10,000 Latin manuscripts that are available today that have been copied. There are 15 to 20,000 manuscripts that were copied into other various languages off of those manuscripts. And you have over 1 million quotation manuscripts from early church fathers. Now, if you compile all of that together, it's been said that if we lost all other sources of biblical manuscripts, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament based on the quotations of passages that were written by early church fathers. Now, there are about 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament 
that we translate into the English Bible. And when you read the Greek manuscripts, you have what's called variations, slight variations. Most of the textual variations are insignificant to the text. It doesn't have any real effect on the translation. We showed you some when we went through some of our previous studies. For example, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8, most English translations read when Jesus sent out his apostles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. You remember we pointed that out. Well, there really, in the Greek text, is no article the before the noun sick. There's no article the before the noun dead. There's no article the before the noun lepers. It's done for English-speaking purposes. They could have just said heal sick, raise dead, cleanse lepers, and that would have been true and accurate, but they put the article the in there to make sense, even though it's not in the Greek text, it's added for English purposes. Now, one of the reasons why there are some variations, and I just want you exposed to this because most people don't know what you're about to learn. One of the reasons why there are some variations is because the same idea can be communicated in multiple ways when it comes to a Greek text. English is pretty much straightforward. You have a subject, a verb, and an object. As we've used the illustration, I throw the ball. It's pretty straightforward. Koine Greek was not like that. You might have a verb that starts the sentence, and you look toward the end of the sentence, and you see the subject, and in between there's the object. It doesn't flow like English does. It's just the way it is in the language. So Dan Wallace gives a great illustration that I want to borrow from him. I translated it for us into English to give you an idea. Let's suppose, for example, that the text wants to say, Jesus loved Paul. So you're a person you're reading, Jesus loved Paul. Now I want to show you the ways that you can say the same thing, but differently. You could say, Jesus loved Paul. You could say Jesus loved the Paul. You could say the Jesus loved Paul. You could say the Jesus loved the Paul. Then you could say Paul Jesus loved. The Paul Jesus loved. Paul the Jesus loved. The Paul the Jesus loved. Then you could say love Jesus Paul. Love Jesus the Paul. Love the Jesus Paul. Love the Jesus the Paul. Loved Paul Jesus, loved the Paul Jesus, loved Paul the Jesus, loved the Paul the Jesus. Now all of those things are potential possibilities for communicating the thought, Jesus loved Paul. So if a guy were copying a manuscript by hand, and he's sitting there copying a manuscript, and he says, Jesus loved Paul, he could basically communicate the point by copying it in any one of those ways. Depending on how technical he was, he could use any one of the things that we just went over as a means of communicating the very point. Now, does that change the meaning of that? They all say the same thing. They all basically say Jesus loved Paul. They're just basically saying it with different structure. And that's why you have, at times, in the manuscripts, a little difference at times. Most of the textual variants fall into the category of not being significant to the meaning, which is an amazing thing considering we're studying a writing that God inspired in the New Testament 2,000 years ago. So it's pretty amazing the data that we actually have to be able to compare this. And Dan Wallace said of all the textual variants of manuscripts, only about 1% would affect meaning. Now I want to show you one illustration 
that just one letter can affect the meaning of what it means, all right? In Romans 5.1, we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some manuscripts read, we have, and they use, if you look at that Greek word that I have there in Greek for you, you'll notice that there in the middle of that word is an O. It's just an O there. Echomen is the word. In the middle of the word, you note the letter O. Some manuscripts have, we have, and you'll notice in the middle of the word, it looks like a letter W. But that also is pronounced O. That's omega in Greek. So you literally would read this either way, echo men, echo men. That's the way you would pronounce it. There would be real no pronunciation difference, but there would be a difference in the letter if you wrote the first O versus the second omega, the omicron versus the omega. So you have the difference of one letter. Now you're a guy, you're copying a manuscript, it's late at night, you're copying Romans 5.1, you're copying the Greek text that you have, and it comes down to this particular verb, we have, and you just are writing and you go echo men, and instead of putting the omicron, which would be the first O, you put the omega, which is the second O, and you make a copying error. So you say, well, does that make a difference? Well, now here we are 2,000 years later. And 2,000 years later, a guy like me is examining the text, and you're examining the text. You've got a book, and you're picking it out, and you're going, why is there a difference here? Would it change the meaning? Well, the first echo men puts it in the indicative mood. And remember, we've talked moods, which would mean it is a fact. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a fact. The second omega word echo men we have puts it in the subjunctive mood which would mean since we've been justified by faith let's go after the peace there's the probability we can get it the possibility we can get it just the one slip up of one little vowel in the text can actually create that difference there are manuscripts by the way that copy that both ways so then you go to work i'm just exposing you to concepts here so then what we do is we go to work on saying okay What manuscripts are the oldest manuscripts? Which one would have been the most logical to have been the original? And most of the people that will tell you, you know, we don't have the originals today, we have copies of the originals. And I used to like what Mr. Miles used to teach us and what Dr. Chafer taught him. We don't know if we have an original manuscript out there because God has not seen fit to let us know. We don't know if one of those papyra manuscripts was the one Paul printed. It could have been. But God has not seen fit to let us know. Why? Because people would worship that manuscript. I mean, if they actually knew that this little fragment of papyrus paper was the fragment of paper that the Apostle Paul actually wrote this on, I guarantee you people would line the streets to worship the document, not the Lord that it's about. And that, I think, is great wisdom that Dr. Chafer shared with Mr. Miles, and then Mr. Miles shared it with us. The point that we need to understand here is that's what you're up against with Bible translation. That's all I'm doing. I'm exposing you to what's involved in Bible translations and those that take it seriously. And I think we need to take it seriously because these people have done their best to go to the original language and bring it into the English language, and you can be absolutely certain in going through a course just like we've gone through here that you are reading the Word of God. You are reading the Word of God. 
It's an amazing thing to think about how God has preserved the scriptures and those manuscripts so that we can actually go through and carefully and honestly evaluate them. We owe a tremendous debt to translators. We owe a tremendous debt to copyists. I mean, those people took the time to copy those letters and send them to churches, preserved them. God preserved them in his sovereignty, but they took the time to do that. And we owe a debt to these translators who took the time to say, all right, let's go through and pour through every single text and translate it into English so people can have the word of God in their own language. And certainly we owe a great praise to God for giving us such wonderful translations in our English language. So that gives you an idea of what Bible translation is like. I think this is the forum where we just at least cover that a little bit. And I would just encourage you to get in his bibliology class. He covers a lot of important information about the Bible in that bibliology class. All right, now as far as the Bible interpretation library, just a couple of remarks on the thing that I put out that I ran off earlier because I didn't do it earlier. But I think probably the best translation in English is the New American Standard Copyright 1995. Lockman Foundation. They have an updated translation, but if you're looking for a Bible that we think, my conclusion is, it's probably the most accurate Bible translation that's out there is the New American Standard Bible. You have to open up to the index page and you'll see copyright dates on there. It says Lockman Foundation, and then you'll want to look up the copyright date and the end date that you want on what I think is the best one that's ever been translated, will be 1995. Don't go to the 2021 one. It'll be 1995. That is probably the finest. In all my years of carefully analyzing these things, it's probably the finest English translation I've ever seen. The Ryrie Study Bible is the one we give to graduates. It's a tremendous Bible because it has book studies and historical background and verse comments. And then in the back of that great Bible... There's a breakdown of all the doctrines that we teach in this church and all the doctrines that have been taught to us. And so it's a great tool, that Ryrie Study Bible. The New International Study Bible, the New International Version, I want to comment on that. It's a different type of translation. It's part literal, but also it takes some liberties to put it in easy English. So what you actually have in the New International Version is not the precision of translation that you get in the New American Standard. You get a good translation, it's easy to read, and if people enjoy reading it, by all means read it. But you don't get, at times, the full accurate picture of things in a text. But it is a tremendous study Bible as far as notes and maps and book introduction things, that's a good one to have. The Schofield Study Bible is a great Bible for its doctrine. The concordances, I think the best concordance is the Young's, not the Strong's. And the reason why I say that is because if you're interested in ever getting a concordance, the Young's concordance, when you look up a word, all the words that are used are right there. So you don't have to keep going, checking out a number, going to the back of Strong's and seeing, well, what word's back there in the back of the book? They're all right there for you. In our view, Young's is the best one to own. It's the most practical. Now, that interlinear that we showed you, it's real small print, but it's the Zondervan Greek and English interlinear New Testament by William D. Mounts and Robert H. Mounts. Very helpful, even if you don't know Greek, because as we gave you those homework assignments, 
You actually have a chart. You can look those words up and then look at your chart. You can identify every word in the New Testament. You can literally start at Matthew 1, go to Revelation 22, and look up every single word in between. Know what the word is, what the case is, what the tense is, what the verb is. I mean, you can look up every word. As far as word studies, Mounts' Complete Expository Dictionary of the Old Testament and New Testament Words by William Mounts. It's a good one-volume book that breaks most of the words down. Not all of them, but most of them. I think it's better than Vines. Vines is an old standard that is used, Vines Expository Words. But I think Mounts is, is a little better as far as offering more data. Systematic theology, the best that's ever been written is Lewis Berry Chafer. I'm convinced of that. Kriegel has it, the complete set, in four volumes. All eight volumes are in the four volumes they publish. I think it's probably the finest theology. You'll never go wrong reading that theology. If you took that theology, you started on page one, and you said, I'm going to, in my lifetime, read through this entire theology, you would be well-grounded. You'd come across a lot of things that basically are the backbone of what we teach here in the church. It's a tremendous theology. Now, Floyd Barackman did kind of a practical Christian theology, a lot of it based on Schaefer. It's a little one-volume, very valuable little tool to have. It systematizes a lot of Schaefer doctrine pretty clearly. Then, if you're interested in historical background to Bible books, there's D. Edmund Hebert. He has a three-volume set, Introduction to the New Testament, and he covers a lot of background books for you. So that pretty much takes us through what I wanted to cover tonight. And so next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin a new study on the doctrine of hell. Thank you for coming. We've got a great, great Lord's Day planned for you. We'll look forward to seeing you Sunday. Thanks. Good night.